Hi, and welcome to Little Fictions On Air. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your host. Each episode, Little Fictions On Air brings you the best in short Australian fiction, read by actors in our studio or recorded at one of our live session venues. Today's episode is called Literary Mashup and includes four authors who take a good deal of poetic licence with the literary works of Shakespeare, Austen and Nabokov. And don't worry, you don't need to be familiar with the original literary works these stories are based on to enjoy these mashed-up versions. Before I play you the first story, just a warning that some of today's episode does contain some colourful language. We'll begin with Carol Ann Martin's Open Letter to Star-Crossed Lovers, which gives a new perspective on Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. The story is narrated by me and was recorded at one of our Little Fictions live events at Knox Street Bar in Chippendale, Sydney. Romeo. Romeo. What the hell do you think you were playing at, Romeo? You wanted to be dead? I mean, how do you think that made me feel? Well, I'm telling you, darling, shattered doesn't come close. I mean, WTF, sweetheart, we had everything. Apart from absolutely delicious sex, there was the fabulous irony. Capulet's wife and Montague's son, he was dangerous. It was hot. It was fun. I just can't understand where it went wrong. And I can only say that we have here every classic feature of a monumental cock-up. Oh, but we had some laughs, didn't we, Romeo? Mostly about Thingamy, my husband, Lord Capulet, he of the long periods of tedium with occasional outbursts of filthy temper. Just look at the nasty way he carried on at Juliet when she said thanks, but no thanks, to Prince Paris. But I'm getting to that. You'll keep Jules, my petal. Romeo, dear heart. Rosaline was sheer genius. Well, not Rosaline, of course. We all know she's an absolute bimbo. But as a red herring, she was perfect. And she certainly has the face for it. If it ever entered Lord C's tiny brain that Romeo Montague was after someone in his household, he'd swallow all the rumours about Rosaline and I'd be safe as. That was why I was so thrilled, darling, when I saw that you'd gate-crashed our party. Brilliant mask, marvellous disguise. And I'd have known that gorgeous little bum of yours anywhere. Well, I was just waiting my chance to give you the sign and we'd nip upstairs for a quickie, but then what happens? All of a sudden you'd vanished, buggered off somewhere without so much as a wink in my direction. Well, we all know now, don't we, Juliet? But you didn't know then, did you? I keep telling myself that no way would you have tampered with Mummy's little bit of fun. Not if you'd known. Then, of course, you'd do realise that if you'd done as you were told and got engaged to Paris, we wouldn't all be where we are now. Instead of being under a marble slab in the family tomb, you'd have been our little princess, having a fabulous life. Summer on Capri, Christmas in St Moritz, and so many adorable babies. But oh no, you had to fall for... Well, yes, sweetheart, I fell for him too. Still cringe when I think about that night. I waited and waited, but Romeo didn't come back, and when the party was over, and I sort of knew I'd had it, I still waited. I still hoped. <laughs> and when Lord C, off his face and all amorous, fell asleep just before the crucial moment, 
I slipped out of bed and went onto my balcony. Wouldn't have been the first time, Romeo, that you'd crept through the garden and said sexy things to me while I leaned over the balustrade. But not that night. Not any night after. And that hurt. But it seems that our hero was round the back, under someone else's balcony. Tell me, Juliet, did he give you that line about the fairest of stars of heaven twinkling in your eyes? If he did, just remember they were my eyes before they were your eyes. He loved me before he loved you, or at least he screwed me before he screwed you. It isn't always down to poetry. Yet I suppose it might have all sorted itself out if it hadn't been for Tybalt. I mean, all things being equal, maybe Romeo could have had us both. What happens? But the death of Tybalt put a different complexion on things. All right, so he was my nephew, so family ties demanded that I carry on something alarming about his death. But to overlook for a moment that I am a lady, and to put it crudely, Tybalt was a pain in the ass. He thrived on the feud between our houses, and on any other excuse he could find to let the testosterone run rampant. He was forever taking it out and waving it around. His sword, I mean. So, thanks to Tybalt, and I'm not the least bit sorry he's dead... My darling boy had to leave town in a hurry, and with him went any hope of a compromise. So, children, my Romeo and my Juliet, where do we go from here? Well, I guess neither of you are going anywhere. Being dead puts the kibosh on pretty much everything. You, Romeo, were a two-timing bastard, and I don't know if I'm ever going to forgive you. Juliet, my baby, you were sucked in. Or were you? At the end of the day, he preferred to die with you rather than live with me. Ouch. But I have to tell you that something interesting happened out of my little affaire de coeur, or is going to happen in about five months' time. He or she will probably have the Montague nose or eyes or hair. In any event, there'll be no hiding the bleeding obvious. My poor deluded darlings. You may have brought an end to the Montague-Capulet feud, but I have a feeling that I'm about to start the whole ridiculous thing up again. Ah well, as someone once famously said, stuff happens. That was Open Letter to Star-Crossed Lovers, a literary mashup of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Next is Susan McCreary's microfiction, Well Then based on a novel by Jane Austen, which many of you will recognise. It is performed by Little Fiction's regular, Eleni Schumacher. Nothing stirred on the frosted fields. Ducks rose off the river silent as commas. Elizabeth pulled her coat tight. Cloudlets fluttered from her mouth as she bowed her head and traipsed on, catching sight as she did of her muddy hem. Just as the first low fingers of sun were extending their reach, she looked up to see a figure approaching in an overcoat, unbuttoned. He strode towards her, not yet aware of her, shirt collar open at his chest. Mr Darcy, she exclaimed. Miss Elizabeth, he said in surprise. What the fuck are you doing out at this ungodly hour? Only madmen and farmers up. It's freezing. Check out your shoes. You're soaked. 
Yes, I, I suppose I am, said Elizabeth, hoping, however, that her cheeks were flushed and her eyes fine. Your nose is as red as a cherry, mate. Best get home before you freeze solid, like my nuts. Darcy let out a loud laugh. <laughs> Elizabeth nodded, unsure where to look. Speaking of nuts, he went on, flashing a large knife. Castration day, girls. Have a good one. Elizabeth moved aside to let Mr Darcy pass in his great boots. Her feet were indeed cold and wet. Time to return to the homestead to set the fire and boil water for tea. Her sisters and mother would soon be awake and clamouring. That was Susan McCreary's Well Then, from her collection of microfiction called Loopholes, which is published by Spineless Wonders. The next story takes the famous Nabokov novel, Lolita, and sets it in a modern-day Sydney beachside suburb. It is written by award-winning author Michelle Carhill and appears in the Spineless Wonders anthology, Escape. It was the year I'd taken up surfing. The candy-scented peach trees were covered with blossoms. Bees were pillaging the lilies and azaleas as I lolled in the garden, soaking up the sun. I flicked through the pages of a novel by Mishima. The story centred on a furtive romance between a middle-aged writer and his young protégé. The love scenes aroused me. I could barely concentrate. My mind wandered, thinking of Nabokov. I ruminated over text messages and emails he'd sent me. The Nabokovs lived in the Art Deco block of flats next door to my mother's house in Willoughby. Vladimir was an entomologist, but he wrote short stories and essays for magazines. I discovered that he'd been dismissed from teaching at a liberal arts college in Cambridge, Massachusetts for unconfirmed rumours of pedophilia. A Russian emigre, he spoke four or five languages. He had a zeal for collecting butterflies and playing chess. Of course, there was a lead-up to our first tryst. I could tell that something big was about to happen. It was like the creepy stillness you sense before a storm. I tried to backpedal, but after flirting with Nabokov at a neighbour's backyard barbecue, that felt a little fake. Even in the company of Vera, his wife, he didn't try to disguise his interest. I was phased by the almost 40-year age discrepancy between us. The loose skin around his neck resembled a toad's. There was something capricious in his heavy brow, his averted gaze when he swivelled on his seat with crossed legs. He promised to help me write a research paper, English being my weakest subject. After the barbecue, he called me on the pretext of the essay. I dropped a flirtatious clue to let him know that Mum was at work. He was over, in a flash. I fixed him a drink and we sat in the garden, talking for hours with no more than a passing reference made to the essay. I'd never met anyone like him. Formal and quirky, he began to negotiate a scenario that would sweep us into socially illicit conduct. The crassness of sleeping with your neighbour wasn't lost on me. It gave new meaning to the phrase, invasion of privacy. The matter was delicate, he confessed. He said he wanted to escape with me, to spend normal time together. As we sat in the shade of a liquid amber, the tension mounted. 
What time does Vera get back? I asked coyly, adjusting my heart-shaped sunglasses. In about an hour, he murmured, calling me Dolly, which I mistook for darling. He imprinted a kiss on my cheek, where by now the dappled shadows of foliage danced. We ended up in bed. I was surprised by how good it was, despite the asthma attack it brought on. By some fluke, he kept a ventolin puffer in his shirt pocket. Two puffs were sufficient to relieve his wheeze. He pinned me to the bed. Sweat fell from his brow. It landed in the hollow between my breasts. He grunted as we came, stifling a moan, short bursts of air escaping from his mouth. My groin pulsed as we hastily got dressed. Thanks a lot, mate, I said, trying to sound casual. I didn't have a string of admirers or anything like that. I was flat-chested with freckles. Youthfully slender with chestnut hair, with sun-kissed arms, with prepubescent hips, legs and breasts, is how Nabokov liked to describe me. I recognise in his memoirs a trace of myself, in the velvet-clad girl of twelve treading rapidly on roller skates with little Japanese steps towards him. Like her, I have a penchant for junk food, for hamburgers and chocolate brownies. Economics was my major. I worked as a research aide in the statistics department, a position I found dreary. My boss was an egomaniac who suffered from bipolar depression. Most of the junior staff were driven by other people's ambitions and networking schemes. But I was always looking for options, for possibilities. The thing with Nabokov captured my fancy. We saw each other frequently after that first time. Our meetings charged by debaucheries. I started to send him obscure mail, or I called him unexpectedly with bizarre messages that made him laugh. When my mother was in hospital having her gallbladder removed, he would drop around while Vera was asleep. It flattered me to think that his efforts were so gutsy. One time we did it in Nabokov's bed. It was a real quickie that left me grazed and swollen. It left me walking out of Jules' supermarket with a smile tattooed on my face. I warned him to check the pillow for my russet curls which Vera might notice. I worried that my hair would be the demise of the whole relationship, and the triviality of this detail amused me. Fate struck several weeks later when the Nabokovs moved to Potts Point. I guessed this was Vera's doing. I'd bumped into her one day at the post office. She was collecting Nabokov's mail and made a point of weaving him into our brief exchange of words. Something about how well she'd got to know him in the years they'd been married. I could tell that she almost presided over his work. She was his editor and his administrator. He'd been offered a position as a lepidopterist for the Australian Museum, Vera said. They'd bought a four-wheel drive so he could travel interstate during summer vacation on butterfly-collecting trips. That morning, the attention she directed towards me seemed more than mildly menacing. Nabokov promised that we'd keep seeing each other. We'd spend quality time together, he said, though it might be less frequent. Riddled by doubts, I knew my feelings were real. The whole business was utterly depraved, but without a soul to confide in, how could I unravel? My girlfriends would be appalled. How could I fall for such miserable adultery? At first, Nabokov played phone tag, missing my calls. Arrangements were made and then broken. He was having trouble with his car. There was mildew in his bedroom. 
bookkeeping to attend to, deadlines to meet. Lo, he murmured, as he sometimes liked to call me. The thing is, I've been neglecting all of this. Utterly numb without him. Everything else was pedestrian. He crept into my thoughts daily, sometimes as a pleasing, wistful fantasy. Other times, I felt raw. After several weeks, I rang him again, sounding grave. I miss you more than I thought I would. Do you? he cried excitedly. Yeah, it's quite funny, really, isn't it? Oh, it's funny, is it? He sounded cross, but he said he wanted to see me. He said he'd called me several times, but my phone was out of range. Why couldn't he be honest about it? I asked. Don't say that. I miss you. I'm possessed by you. We agreed to meet the next day. Lying in bed that night, huddling to keep warm, I dozed off before falling into a deep reverie. My phone began to ring, calling like a night owl, louder and louder till it entered my awareness. I loped towards the dresser, picking up the handset. It was Nabokov. There was a hypnotic spell in the soft tone of his voice. Hi. What were you doing? The handset read 11.30. Through the bay windows I could see leaves scattering and lightning striking the sky. Masturbating, I replied, with a hint of laughter in my voice. I could hear his teeth make a soft clicking noise in his mouth. Can I see you tonight? he murmured. So, does this mean we can't see each other tomorrow? I wanted to go to the beach with him, uh, or drive somewhere fancy for lunch. All right, Lo, I'll see you tomorrow then, he said, sounding sad and uncertain. I felt under pressure. I agreed to meet him at a mobile service station near the Royal National Park where he'd been photographing spread-winged skippers. He gave me a generous hour to arrive. Was it a dream, I wondered, after the call ended? Wasn't I insane to be driving a good 40 minutes in this sort of weather at this time of night? What was he thinking? Perhaps after we talked, he'd rolled over in bed and made love to Vera. That was an abridged version of Michelle Carhill's Chasing Nabokov, which was narrated by me and also recorded at Knox Street Bar. In our final story, we return to the Bard with Blue Mountains author Marco Flynn's new monologue for Shakespeare's play Othello. Here is the very talented actor Tim McGarry with Iago. From this time forth, I never will speak word. Sure, I said that, or something like it. It was all written down in a hurry, you have to remember, but I didn't mean it. A chatterbox like me? How can you keep us quiet? I was under duress. Of course it looked bad, blood on the sword and all of that, but it was what they call circumstantial. I only remained silent on the grounds that I might otherwise incriminate myself. Sure, it wasn't a pretty scene. As I said, the girl dead on the bed, the more a gurgle on the floor, and all the claret on the carpet, my good wife squawking in the wings, Your Honour, these histrionics, I pray you. Well, in my defence, and I'm saying nothing that I wouldn't say to the Honourable Magistrate himself, I didn't kill them. It wasn't my knife. I was off drinking sack with K. 
Cassio and mighty fine sack it was too. Plenty of eyewitnesses can confirm it. I didn't even know he had a knife, though I probably could have guessed this being old, bloody Elizabethan guts and thunder and all of that. We've all got knives. It was, as they say, a hostage situation. I admit I played a few tricks on the gullible from time to time, sending the blind down dark alleys, spiking wedding firkins with my spiky spike and so on. <laughs> Who doesn't enjoy a harmless practical jest? I'm a comedian. In my day job, I'm a fool down at the rose, juggling my heart out, stilt walking, balancing cats and pigeons on my head. I'm a chameleon. I should have been promoted to the main role, centre bloody stage, not the lemony-faced of this mordant, cloven-hoofed, left-handed villain I've been made out to be. This is scurrilous slander upon my good name and robs me from what makes them piss-poor indeed. The rogues, unfairly tarnished. That's what I am. I reject the imputation that I am not a character impeccable. After all, my name is Money. Big box office bucks. A damn sight more money they stood to make too if they'd have put my name centre stage, with supporting roles going to old holier-than-thou Othello and Dizzy Desdemona. Hmm, Dizzy Desdemona. Lushes as a locust. I wouldn't have minded a bit of carnal sting with her if she'd given me half a start. Making the bouncing two-backed beast. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Must say, I haven't lost the old turn of phrase, have I? My lad. Picture them in the cot, as hot as monkeys, going like a gong in a storm, going hell for leather. My lad. From hence does a phrase like that come. My lad. Only one can imagine. But no, she was too pure in soul, too chaste for words, saving her honour for him, offered the wars when everyone else was rutting to their heart's content behind closed doors back here in Venice. A pox on them. Funny how the opening gambit allows Venice a street. I would have thought it would have been more like Venice, a bridge or a stinking scum-ridden drain would have been more aptly apt, old Wally Shakespeare's my nemesis. Never set foot in the place. Excellent word, that. Rutting. Please don't think I'm raving. Infidelity is the name of the game. Sister or a stage boy on the side dressed up in harlotry, which is not my taste. Neither was marriage to Amelia. If truth be told, and I am honest Iago. Is that a surname or a Christian name? Iago. I never hath decided. Amelia had a tongue on her like a swarming vespery, the villainous whore. Forsooth, I never understood the old boy's green-eyed gnashing and wailing. Well, off out of it, I thought. Take thy money and thy slipper and scamper. All that fuss over a lost snot rag. Get over it. A pity to see the dame, blue as a berry like that on the bed, all akimbo. If that's a word allowable in the thrust and parry, a marionette. Told you I was a jocular lad. Nice-looking sort, such a waste. 
All the thought of this so-called permissive society, the new world condoning old abhorrences such as mixed marriage, threesomes, foreskins, migrants and refugees intermingling with the rest of us. Oh, you wouldn't read about it. Don't think I'm trying to get off the track. It's all designed to obfuse constumble us. Why did diplomacy and good leadership achieve? Now, get a load of him with a bone-handled dagger sticking out of his gullet. Who's the clever dick now? What did the sweet dame see in him? I'm only saying what everybody else thinks, for I am, as ever, honest Iago, am I not? With a purse full of money so as to reimburse my trusted queen's counsel for... With a little honest pressing of the flesh, I think I can beat this rap. Bail, probably. Extradition. To a friendly adjunctum. Assassination of witnesses. <laughs> Slow boat to exile. I'm looking at scot-free. And if I can't? Well, even when they come for me, the Duke's execution is with their strapado and other torments to ope my lips. I'll ope all right. I'll sing like a jaybird, like a fat, mocking canary, any old thing that you'd like to hear from the shadows of my castle keep. And when they raise the glinting sunlight of their axes, I won't keep shut. I'll fill the air with the music of my crowing. They won't forget me in a hurry. He mounts the scaffold. I'll rail at them from the dock. I won't be silent. I'll shout from my perch on the pike as the jackdaws strike my eyes. And when they stop my mouth with a pillow, like old mate did to Desdemona, the words will back up in my throat, back up and gurgle out of my windpipe in a new language. Pink bubbles with a newborn word in each, floating into the lazy air, filling their ears. If ever I did dream of such a matter, make me shut up. I'd like to see them try. That was Iago, performed by actor and director Tim McGarry. Tim trained at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts and works as a freelance actor, director, dramaturg and a devising theatre maker. He most recently adapted and directed Music for the Dreaming, a collaboration between ABC Kids Classic FM and Sydney Opera House Presents. Iago can be found in Marco Flynn's collection White Light and Other Stories, published by Spineless Wonders. We hope you've enjoyed these remakes of some of the literary classics. Do let us know what you think of our show. We'd love your feedback. You can leave a comment on the 2RPH website or their Facebook page or give them a call or write them a letter. And if you'd like to listen to this episode again, or any previous episode, go to the Little Fictions podcast page on the 2RPH website. This episode was produced by Spineless Wonders publisher, Bronwyn Meehan, and our sound engineer was Oliver Agbisset. I'm Ella Watson-Russell, your Little Fictions on Air host. Bye for now. Bye for now.